Father, we thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that as you speak, worlds are created. Thank you that as you speak, lives are transformed. And so we pray that you would be at work among us as we look at these verses together. We long that you would soften our hearts and speak to us as as individuals, but as a church as well. Wherever we're coming from, whatever the kind of week we've had, whatever's going on in our lives, would you speak, we pray. Would you nourish us? Would you transform us into the likeness of your Son by your Spirit? Amen. If you've been here um, at all for the past few weeks, you'll know we've been doing something slightly different. Um, We've been going through different passages, ideas and concepts in a more sort of thematic way than we normally would. And as if you were in for the kids slot, you'll realise we're taking fairly basic kind of simple ideas about God, stuff that should keep us grounded, the kind of stuff that we sing about on a Sunday, but then taking time to work through what they look like in everyday life, how it impacts us on a Tuesday or a Thursday or when life gets messy and hard and things perhaps haven't gone quite the way they've planned. So they are theoretically things that we believe about God, but, but almost functionally things that we don't when push comes to shove. And if you were here, I mean, week one, you remember that the image we used was, was that of a drinks machine. And we said we put the pound coin into the drinks machine and it, it kind of sticks and doesn't really drop. And you, you have to sort of whack it and whack it to make this coin drop. And so we said, well, we know what God is like. We know the truth. We know the gospel. But sometimes we need whacking before it drops and actually works its way out in our lives. And so my question for you, um, really, is how have these last three weeks gone? I know it's only been three weeks, but what's the Lord been doing in you, among us? Anything different? Any, any changes? Any challenges? Has, uh, has the coin started to drop at all? Is it still stuck at the top with chewing gum or whatever it is? Has the pound coin begun to move? Is it beginning to shift? I take it that's a key way of us growing and maturing as, as believers, as Christians. It, it's not in one sense to know more stuff, not to be better at Bible studies to know more information, but actually to to know God better, to work through the implications of the gospel in our lives. More than just nice ideas. Think of it like this. Think that we are all hypothetical kites. That's us in this room. Some of us are diamonds, some of us are box kites, some of us are stunt kites. We're all different shapes, different colours, different sizes. We're all kites. And in the bags, they look good. They look impressive. The question is, when the kites come out and it's windy and it's choppy and it's stormy, how are they going to cope? Because sometimes those kites look pretty legitimate. They look pretty good, actually. They are strong, they are stable, they are sorted-looking kites, and yet you put them into the storm and the string just snaps. And you thought they were grounded, but actually they're not grounded at all. When push comes to shove, they just fly off. Frail, fragile, flimsy. 
And we can look pretty impressive. And we can know our stuff, and we can do theology pretty well, and we can answer questions in Bible studies till the cows come home. And we've certainly got a handle on that passage, and we can talk the talk. But what about when it gets stormy, and life gets hard? What about when this hypothetical God that we know lots about needs to be the God whom we actually know? And these truths need to impact. Because some of us are kites and we look pretty good. But what happens when it gets stormy? And so what we've been doing, um, if you've been here you'll know this, or if you've been listening in, if you've missed stuff, um, we've been looking at these four G's that change everything. Um, You can see it on the screen if you've got amazing vision. Um, better still, there might be a business card underneath you or near you, or even better still, a business card in your wallet or your phone case or your back pocket. If you do put them in your back pocket, don't put them through the wash. That doesn't work. But we've been thinking of these, these four Gs that change everything, truths that come from God, truths about God to impact our lives. And you remember we said that these aren't original to me at all. They're from a book called um, You Can Change by a guy called Tim Chester. Maybe four or five pages in there that we've tried to expand over this month and work some of those ideas through. So do grab a business card um, or wherever you have them and just have a quick reminder again. The first one was God is great on January the 1st. We don't have to be in control. Do you know we can actually trust him because he is great? And in that situation, in that context where you're not sure whether he's trustworthy, he is because he's great. We said week two, he's glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Do you remember the the weighing scales? Remember if you were here last week with the kids thinking, where is God on the scales? Is he more weighty? Or in the scheme of things, do what people think matter more than what he thinks and his glory? Week three, again, as the kids were thinking about, where do we find our genuine satisfaction? He is good. We don't have to look elsewhere, but we're all after PlayStation 1s or 2s or 3s or 4s or... We think that will satisfy us, and it does for a bit, but then it's the next thing. Well, that next thing definitely will, and then it does for a bit, but and we're looking elsewhere and elsewhere and elsewhere. And this week is God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Because for many of us, he is the disapproving dad, and we we have to earn his love or his favor or deserve love from him. Or he's the grumpy headmaster, and we can never do enough for him. But the passage we shall see says he is gracious and he loves us, not because of who we are, in fact, but because of who he is and what he's like. Because it's his nature to love. And I'd venture to say that this is a lesson that all of us will need to grapple with for the entirety of our lives, at least in these bodies. Because on paper, God's grace looks brilliant. And it's the kind of thing we want to sing about. But in reality, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us twitchy. Because there is something profoundly human about wanting to earn God's favour, to earn his love. We don't want it to be a free gift. Look at why I'm worth it, Lord. Look at how valuable I am, Lord. Look at what I bring to the table, Lord. Look at my productivity this last week, Lord. You must love me for that. Look at my track record. Look at all that I've done for you. Lord, surely that's why you love me. Our hearts are like the proverbial shopping trolley that annoyingly just veer off towards self again and again. And we fight against it, but it veers off towards self. 
away from grace towards works. And so our passage for this week, we're in Luke 15, as Hannah read for us, and we're zooming in on the older brother. Now, we did something similar, actually, if you have an amazing memory, about three and a half, four years ago at Magdalen Road. We're doing things slightly different this morning. But this is a, this is a passage for someone like me, because my heart is like a shopping trolley, and I veer off towards self. And I love singing about grace, but I love to think that actually I deserve it in some way as well. So do open Luke 15. And again, just to get bearings, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now if you're familiar with the account, the younger son was the story of the tax collectors and sinners. The people who thought they were too far gone, the people who thought they had too many skeletons in the closet. God can't be interested in people like that. But the older son in the story, he is the muttering, mithering, moaning, complaining religious establishment, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are up in arms by this Jesus who has come eating and drinking with the scum of society, does he not know who they are? Does he not know he needs to distance himself from that lot? What is he doing, they think? And so to them, Jesus tells a story. The story of the older son. Because, of course, both sons are lost. The older and the younger. For the younger son, it's blatant. You can't miss it. He is sat eating pig food, wishing he was back home. We're not surprised that he was lost. But the older one, he's been working hard for the farmer, for the father, sorry. He is upright and sorted and together and shiny and respectable. He's been keeping himself out of trouble, keeping his nose clean. But Jesus says he is totally lost too. And that's the sting in the tail. So pick it up at 21, verse 21. The father, despite having been shamed by the younger son, runs out to meet him. And the younger son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. No hoops to jump through. No expectations. Status instantly restored. There's a a robe, there's a ring, there's a celebratory party. It's beautiful. Everyone's happy. Turns out not everyone. There's one person who isn't. There's an older brother. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son in the field, he, he came near the house and he hears music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The excitement and joy of the big-hearted, generous father. But he's livid. That sort of party, that sort of music, that can only mean one thing. In fact, where has the fattened calf gone? There's a party. That must mean my younger brother's back. And he's livid. He is livid. He is the hard-working, upright 
Pharisee and teacher of the law. And Jesus is hanging out at dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners, with these younger brother types. What is going on? And what I want us to do, I want us to zoom in on this older brother. And I want us to diagnose five symptoms of older brotheritis. That's not a real word, so don't go and look that up. But five symptoms of older brotheritis to show that he has not understood grace. And actually it shows that he has not known the Father. For all his hard work, he's not, he's not known his Father. Let me read 28 to 32 again. And we'll try and tease out these five symptoms. I think there are more there, but five for this morning. Verse 28, the the elder brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He he was lost and is found. Okay, so older brotheritis, first symptom, anger. Verse 28. I take it older brothers are people who frequently get angry. And certainly we can point the finger at the younger son. He he shames and he disrespects his father at the start of the story. He asked for his inheritance early and that is an outrageous slur. But the older son is no better. He disrespects his father too. He doesn't come in, forces the father to come outside and to plead with him. And why is he angry? He's angry because if you're someone who doesn't understand grace, in many ways your identity and status and self-worth is tied up in what you do. And if you see someone being rewarded and celebrated who, who has not achieved, who has passed failures, that will make you angry. You will look at them and be angry. And you might be a loud shouter or you might be a quiet bubbler. But anger is never far from the surface never far away and the younger brother is is welcomed back in into the family there's a party for him are you kidding me does he deserve that it's as if all the hard work of the older brother counts for nothing has the father not seen that whilst the second son's been away he didn't leave he put in the hours He signed up to Rotors. He worked harder. He deserves reward. He deserves recognition. His younger brother gets back and he squandered it all and he's congratulated. Are you serious? Clearly he's not read the right parenting manuals. Clearly he's child number two being shown preferential treatment. But isn't that the scandal of God's grace? Doesn't it make us uncomfortable? You see, it means if you've been out in the field day after day after day looking to earn God's favour, you've completely wasted your time. That's not what it's about. God's grace makes older brothers angry. Do you get angry? 
Is anger your problem? Maybe, maybe it's when you're made to look or feel stupid or worthless. Maybe when you're sidelined. Maybe when no one listens to you and you think, why doesn't anybody take me seriously? Why does nobody care how I feel? When it seems like you're the only one who gives a monkeys. When nobody else can be bothered. When no one else is pulling their weight. And you're boiling inside. And your fuse is tiny. Why am I the only one who cares about this stuff? Why does nobody else... What's going on? Why don't they appreciate me? Anger. Secondly, it's the language of slavery. And if you know this passage, you will know this is really important. It's there in verse uh, 29... He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. It's the language of oppression. It's the language of servitude. Look at how hard he's worked for his father. Look at how little he's been rewarded or noticed. He's put in the hours. He put his dad's business first. He's late, late nights, early mornings, blistered hands, aching back. Again and again and again, he's put himself out. And for what? For what, I ask you? It doesn't even seem as if his dad cares about that. His dad's not even noticed. Does that sound fair to you? Does that make your blood boil? How would you feel if you were him? I dare say it, we can almost understand the shift in verse 29. The shift from being a son to being a slave. We don't want a father of unconditional love that allows dirty prodigal sons back into the family again. We want a father of conditional love where where we know how to perform and we know what will make him love us. Who rewards those who deserve it. Imagine this. Imagine a woman who cooks for her family. As one writer puts it, imagine a woman who cooks for her family and the family are ungrateful and unkind. It's a pittance of a salary. They're always threatened to sack her and get a new one if her work is not up to standard. For her, work is a drudgery and a duty. It's a daily chore. She resents it. Now imagine a young bride. Imagine a young bride full of love for her husband who is attentive and kind and encouraging and admiring. How does she cook him a meal? Drudgery? Duty? Joyless duty will characterize our attitude if we think of God as an uncaring boss. But if he is a gracious and kind father, then we will love to serve him. Because we know that we are loved by him. And so again, the question is, if I can be slightly bold, how are you finding serving God as you serve one another at church? In our church family here, the nitty-gritty of being family, the reality of messy relationships. Not necessarily the sort of formal rotary things, but the stuff that goes on behind the surface. Meeting up with people, praying for people, encouraging people, loving people. Or how about serving God as you serve your family in your house, at home? 
as you serve your spouse or your kids? What words do you use as you think about that? Joyful, excited, willing, privileged, brilliant, cynical, jaded, disillusioned, reluctant. You see, as we serve God in those different contexts, what we think of him will affect how we do it. And isn't it scary how easily we can be older brothers as we do that? When the delight goes and the drudgery comes and we feel like slaves. And the problem with the older brother, though, it wasn't that he worked hard, but it was the motive behind the working hard. Before we know it, if we have a slave mentality in place, then for all our toil and labor and stuff that we do, we think, well, God owes us something now. God, I've, I've played my part here. I'm waiting for you to turn up and do your bit. I've done my thing, now you owe me. But he's gracious and generous and good and kind. He's the kind of God who runs to us with arms open wide, longing to embrace us and welcome us back. It is from that relationship that we then serve, not to make him happy with us, but because he loves us. Because he is the one who has loved us and served us in Christ. He is the one who has poured out himself for his people at the cross, that we might know true love, that we might know him, and so have freedom to serve him as we were created. Anger, slavery, Next one, judgmental. Older brotheritis means we're judgmental. You see the progression. If older brothers think they're okay with God because of what they've done, because of their obedience, their duty, their labor, their box ticking, their slaving in the fields for the father, well, you're going to struggle with younger brother types. They're going to wind you up. And so 29 again, he answered his father, look all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He, he's kept a record, a tally of all he's done. All the good things he's done, maybe he's fastidiously made mental notes and filed them away to build up a case in his mind. I've always done as you've asked me, I've always ticked the boxes, I've never rebelled. Why? Because he's trying to prove himself. Because he wants to remind others of what he's done because he wants to make sure others have noticed and that he looks important. And this younger brother, what's he done? Seriously, give me one thing that he has done for you, Father. He has disobeyed you and he has shamed you. Has he been good enough? Has he slaved on rotors like I have? Has he been in the fields like I have? Has he worked as hard as me? Has anyone noticed me? And we live in a world where people are running on treadmills every day, trying to perform day after day after day, trying to prove themselves day after day, in the workplace by putting in hours and more hours and more hours and making sure the boss notices, at home by having the beautiful house and the beautiful family and everything together and it looking great, proving yourself at church by, by being someone who always really, really helps others and loves others, a, a great musician, a great worship leader, a great Bible study leader, a great leader, a great Bible student, 
the theologian we all go to, the great preacher even, seeking to prove ourselves by what we do. But we can rest. We can rest. We don't have to prove ourselves. We can't ever prove ourselves. Because the context when we seek to prove ourselves is always other people. And we want to compare and just make sure that we're a bit better than them when it comes down to it. That we just know a little bit more than them. That we just outdo them slightly and we begin to judge them. I don't think it's too much to read into this passage that it seems like the, old, the older brother paints the younger brother in the nastiest possible way that he can. So do you notice that? I think it's the way we, we magnify and overplay the sins in others. So, for example, verse 30... Have a look down. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And we hadn't heard anything about prostitutes. Right through the story that's not mentioned. Maybe even he's, he's thinking the worst. He's highlighting potential sins. Such that he looks better and the younger brother looks worse. It goes worse than that as well. He... He doesn't just look down on his younger brother. He looks down on the father. He doesn't say, my brother comes home. He says, when this son of yours comes home, blames his dad. Maybe it's not even deliberate. Maybe it's the way we don't know we do it, but it's just that tendency that we bring others down so that we look better. And so he brings his brother and his dad low. And when we're all about comparisons, and when the context is always other people, life is really unstable. And my mood, and self-worth, and esteem, and status, and value depends on everyone else and how they're doing. Depends on how you're performing, and how I compare. Which means, fourthly, it links into the fact that he, has, he seems to have no assurance You just get that sense with green eyes as he blurts out, you never threw me a party. As long as we're seeking to impress or or even control God through our good behaviour, we we will never be sure we've, we've done enough. We will always be wobbly. Have we done enough to keep God sweet with us this week? Where do we lie in the performance tables at the moment? Maybe it's that, why, that reason when everything seems to go wrong in your life or you don't get the job you wanted or the person you wanted and you think, is God punishing me here? If I'd performed a bit better, if I was a few rungs higher up the ladder, maybe I would get what I want. This would never have happened, we think. Or it's that guilt that we just can't shake. You just can't be sure that you've repented enough. So you beat yourself up over what you did in days, months, Years gone by. If I could just make myself sorry enough, then God would be bound to forgive me, wouldn't he? He'd have to forgive me. And we feel more like slaves than sons because slaves are disposable and get a new one. Have a listen to this from the early days of John Wesley. This from one of his biographies. He was a very keen guy. He said he and his friends visited the inmates of the prisons and workhouses of Oxford. 
They took pity on the slum children of the city, providing them with food, clothing, and education. They observed Saturday as the Sabbath, as well as Sunday. They went to church and to Holy Communion. They gave alms. They searched the scriptures. They fasted and prayed. But then, as he writes later in his life, looking back at those days, he said, I had then the faith of a servant and not that of a son. See, all that he was doing was to earn something from God. He had no assurance, never quite sure if he'd done enough. Until he understood God as his father. And he knew he was a son. Because when it's about what you do, how do you know if you've done enough? How can you tell? What kind of grade do you need? Where does God draw the line? And so you're constantly seeking to prove yourself which means you have no assurance. And finally, there's no forgiveness too. I think that's a striking symptom of older brotheritis as we finish, that older brothers struggle to forgive others. Maybe you look at the younger son and you're disgusted. You think, well, I'd never do that. Seriously. I'm better than that. I, I frankly can't even conceive of someone thinking of doing that. I would never treat someone like that. I would never say something like that. I would never keep making the same mistakes like that again and again and again, we think. And so we're cold and we hold grudges and we cling on to and we indulge past hurts for months and years and decades because, because servants don't really know forgiveness. And we replay conversations in our heads, analysing how we were so badly treated by them. and How dare they do that to us? Unable to let it go, unable to shake it off. But grace doesn't work like that. It's a level playing field. In Christ, each of us stands at the foot of the cross, ashamed, ruined, exposed, vulnerable, but also loved and forgiven and shown mercy and secure. More sinful and broken than we could ever imagine, but more treasured and accepted than we could ever dream. We come to the cross, to the place where arms are open wide for us, grace upon grace upon grace is extended, a father who runs to us, a son who dies for us, a spirit who, who draws us to him and opens our eyes to him. We're a people who are forgiven, and so are people who do forgive. Just as we draw to a close, I want you to notice two things from verse 31. Two things. My son, the father, said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He, he was lost and is found. Notice firstly, he'd forgotten he was a son. He'd, he was lost because he had forgotten his status with the father. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours, said the father. And when we forget our identity... When we lose track of who we are in Christ, whether on, 
on paper or perhaps more likely in practice in the day-to-day -day normal nitty-gritty stuff of life when we feel we need to prove ourselves or we lack assurance or we want to judge others or we're unforgiving or angry remember who you are in Christ Remember the beautiful love of the Father for you. Remember your sin and your shame, but also your acceptance and your welcome. Don't forget who you are. Secondly as well, notice, notice how it ends. Do you see, Luke 15 is left tantalizingly open. The previous two stories in the chapter, the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, we didn't look at them there's something lost, someone goes looking for it and finds them. And it's all tied up and we're happy. This one is different though and deliberately it sticks out. Deliberately a different ending. Do you remember verse 1 and 2? The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they were the recipients. They were on the end of this message from Jesus. And Jesus told it because he loved them. They didn't realise it, but they were lost. And so who is the one searching for them in this parable? It's Jesus. W will they come into the party? Will they remember that they're not slaves, but they're sons? Will they stop trying to prove themselves? Will they stop trying to justify themselves, looking down on others? Will they stop clinging on to their lack of forgiveness? Will they rejoice in the love of the Father? It's a big question mark at the end. It's left hanging deliberately. The jury is out. As the pages of Scripture turn, we know that some Pharisees did trust Christ. We know Nicodemus, for example, who turns up at the start of John's Gospel in chapter 3, but then by the end he seems to be a believer, a follower of Christ. We know in Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. They did. They, they recognized they were lost. They came into the party. They stopped slaving in the fields and came to celebrate. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here as a guest or a visitor or someone just looking in on things. And suddenly the penny has dropped, or begun to. We realise we've got this whole Christian thing wrong. Or, or maybe you're a regular. Maybe you're at church every week, and you've just grasped afresh that, that you've been suffering from older brotheritis. Maybe God's Spirit has been at work convicting you, and you see your shopping trolley heart veering off towards self and away from grace. Maybe you realise again and again it's been you trying to do stuff to impress God, trying to do stuff to make him happy. Maybe you see some of these symptoms on the screen. Maybe you've been slaving like the older son in joyless obedience. And yet God says to us, I'm gracious. Friends, we don't need to prove ourselves. And so come home. Come on. C come into the party. Come to the Father who loves you and who pours out grace upon grace upon grace upon you. Stop trying to earn like a slave. 
Come and be a son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, where, where we see these symptoms in us, we long that you would be at work. Help the coin to drop. Help us to trust that you are truly gracious, that your grace is sufficient. And we don't have to and we can't prove ourselves to you. Thank you that we are loved, accepted, welcomed, cherished because of who you are because of who we are in Christ would your spirit be at work in us we pray would you be opening our eyes to see perhaps a fresh sense of your graciousness and your goodness be at work and transform us for your glory for our good Amen.